Chapter Four of Blake of the Rattlesnake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Blake of the Rattlesnake by Frederick T. Jane. Chapter Four: The Press Gang. The dockyard people were working night and day at our ship, repairing the damage caused by the late action, but, slight as this comparatively speaking was, ten days' time was the earliest possible date by which they could promise her in. We were not allowed to be altogether idle in the interim, but were employed on a job that, however necessary it may have been, was distasteful to the last degree. Ships were continually putting into Portland, try and get a few men from the depot which had been established on board the Beskawan, but the reserve had been exhausted some days before our arrival, and it was absolutely necessary to replenish the supply. No volunteers being forthcoming, the admiral in command of the depot ordered a press-gang on his own responsibility, knowing well that the admiralty in its desperate strait would stand by him if he relieved their difficulty. On the rights and wrongs of the question I need scarcely speak. Certain newspapers have not dropped the subject even yet. But behind the scenes we recognize that, if men would not volunteer to serve their country, they must be compelled to do so. All the same, none of us quite liked having to carry it out ourselves, and when it was done, would have given worlds to have had no share in it. It was yet early in the morning that the semaphore came detailing us for the duty, and, glad of any excitement that would kill the memory of the recent fight, which had made me feel pretty queer when it was all over, I at first hailed the news with joy. As for the blue jackets, they were uproariously delighted at it. Sailors hated the civil population pretty strongly just at that time. Blake was the only laggard when the news came, and he tried hard to get off but it was no good. He had to go. From what transpired that night I can well understand how he must have loathed visiting the district selected. The expedition, under the leadership of one Commander Kearson, consisted also of Lieutenant Blake, myself, and some threescore bluejackets and marines, mostly from our ship. The men all had their cutlasses, and we carried revolvers as well as our swords. A special train took us on our gruesome journey, landing us about a mile from the villages we intended to attack, and outside the station we separated, Kearson with one detachment moving off at once, while we hung about for a while, waiting till it should get dusk. The church clock was striking nine as we strolled in small parties down the village street, halting at the inn where we expected to make our principal hall. To our astonishment we found it deserted, save for a deaf old woman from whom we learned, after much questioning, that the best part of the population was gathered in the parish room, where a concert was being held to raise money for the widows of sailors killed in action. If our task had been unpleasant before, this information made it trebly so. But it had to be gone through, nevertheless, and nothing was to be gained by delay. Five minutes later we were all gathered outside the room. There were two doors to the place, one at the end, the other a small entrance leading to an anteroom as well. 
Blake and fifteen men made for the larger door, while I took the rest towards the other. When the song—we could just catch the sound of a woman singing—when the song is over, and they begin to applaud, rush in, whispered Blake to me, as we made for our respective posts. The little door was ajar, and through it I could hear one of the sweetest voices it had ever been my lot to listen to, as it died away in that beautiful refrain, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Then came a storm of applause, and in the midst of it we burst through right on to the platform. Our sudden entrance caused a hush to fall on the audience, who rose to their feet and stared blankly, first at us and then at Blake's men, who had filed in at the other end of the room. It was Blake's voice that first broke the stillness. "'I want twenty-four volunteers for Her Majesty's fleet.' and if these are not willing, it will be my duty to take two dozen of you, whether they will or no. His speech was received in silence, and he repeated it without effect, though a youth or two near him seemed inclined to come forward, and then to think better of it. "'Very well,' cried Blake, anxious to get the business over as soon as possible, and he motioned to his followers to seize the most suitable-looking men." Then, indeed, arose an awful uproar. I could not see what was going on down Blake's end, as we were fully occupied in striving to capture and handcuff those near us, and at the same time ward off the blows that fell thick upon us from the captive's fellow-villagers. A clergyman got up on the platform, and tried to say something, but his words were lost in the din of women shrieking and men cursing. Then suddenly, above this tumult, I heard a woman's voice calling to Blake by his Christian name. Standing on the platform, facing my captain, with flashing eyes, was the lady who had been singing when we so abruptly entered. She seemed about to say something more, but an old gentleman, whom I recognized at once as General Monckton, intervened and led her to the anteroom, and thither Blake soon made his way. I did not intentionally play the eavesdropper, but I couldn't help hearing what was said inside, for I was posted close to the door, looking after our prisoners, who, surrounded by weeping women, were crowded into a corner hard by. The rest of the people had cleared out altogether, and comparative silence and some sort of order was restored. "'Lucy,' Blake was saying, Fate seems to have ordained that I shall always appear to you as a brute or a murderer. Believe me that in neither case could I have acted otherwise. Why do you shun me and blame me, because my duty has compelled me to do what you have unfortunately been a witness of? She made no answer, or none that I could hear, and he went on appealingly to her. When we sank that cruiser which chased you in the Valletta, it was really and absolutely impossible for us to pick up her crew without endangering not our liberty only, but your lives and liberty as well. And as for what you have seen to-night, it had to be done, and I had to do it, though God knows I find it hateful enough. The old general seemed to have said something then, but I could not catch his words, and then at length Miss Monckton spoke. Edward? I loved you with all my heart, and I looked upon you as a prince among men. More, I love you still, though God knows I had rather not, for though I should live for ever, 
and though to live without you were endless torture, yet, ah, go away, go away, I can never, never forget, that cry of the men you left to drown, the cries of the women here whose sons and sweethearts you have taken from them, the little children who will never see their fathers again, go, and may God forgive you, Edward, for the misery that you bring. I heard no more, much to my relief, for, all being ready, we now marched the prisoners away. Blake hurriedly adjoined us, and we started our tramp back to the station, but ere we had got well away from the village, a great crowd of rustics, armed with pitchforks, scythes, and other tools, came up, calling on us to give up our prisoners. There was a sharp scuffle, but the countrymen were no match for our sturdy sailors, who, their blood once roused, cut and slashed without mercy. A couple of burly fellows attacked me, one with a scythe cutting at my legs, while his companion thrust at me with a fork, and though I made some sort of defence with my sword, I was being pressed backwards and separated from our party, when a couple of flashes, followed by two sharp reports, came from behind me, and my assailants, throwing up their arms, stumbled into the roadway in a confused heap. Blake, who had fired the shots, seized my arm, drawing me after him, and we soon rejoined our fellows, who, having just charged the mob, were now left in peace. Two bluejackets had received nasty cuts, and most of us had some bruises, but on the whole we got off lightly. One prisoner had escaped or been pulled away by his friends, but the others, attended by their womenfolk, were still in our keeping. By threats and force we got them along towards the station, though our progress was slow, and often interrupted by the women who clung about us, begging that we would spare them each her loved one. One old dame, whose grandson was among the captured, cursed us the whole journey, and altogether we felt like a party of murderers. At the station we found Commander Kearson and his men, with a dozen prisoners handcuffed together in the centre of the group. The commander shut the women outside the station, and we got into the train unimpeded. But long after we had left, the wails and lamentations of the crowd outside rang in our ears. This was, I am happy to say, my first and last experience of a press-gang. Kearson, who had taken part in previous expeditions of the same sort, assured me that one soon got used to it, but for my own part I had sooner be engaged in a slave-raid. To make matters worse, after what I had seen, I was, of course, unable to talk the matter over with Blake, and hanging about doing nothing at Portland was about the worst thing possible for me. My mind kept dwelling upon the gruesome scenes of that memorable night, and inflamed by reading the violent articles that appeared about it, for the press, with a few honourable exceptions, shrieked loudly about the press-gang outrages, I worked myself up into quite a fever of remorse. As for Blake, he went and volunteered for any desperate service that might be on hand, and before long got one that soon relegated the press-gang incidents into the obscurity of the past. End of chapter 4